Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is uh, Powers in Play with our regular panel members, retired uh, Colonel Dr. Eran Lerman, retired or reserve rather Colonel Miri Eisen. Welcome, retired Colonel. Why did they retire all of you colonels rather than keep you on until you are generals? We were all full. <laughs> Ruven Ben Shalom. And former Deputy Foreign Minister, former Ambassador to Washington, Danny Ayalon. Welcome all. The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, uh, which sits uh, in uh, Vienna, uh, has recently condemned Iran for uh, its efforts to block inspections, dismantle cameras, and um, in other uh, areas of making trouble for the so-called additional protocol of um, non-proliferation treaty regime members. And this, in addition to what Russia has been doing during its war uh, with Ukraine, Russia did not use nuclear weapons, but it indicated that uh, under certain circumstances, it could come to that. All of this brings into question what uh, was up to now perceived as one of the greatest achievements of the post-World, Second World War period. And that is the 1970 NPT regime in which both the haves and the have-nots of the nuclear uh, field have come together again under certain conditions and uh, assumptions. So the question is, are we about to see this regime, this um, restraint um, that many countries in the world uh, have taken upon themselves, are we going to see it disintegrate and are going to uh, be in a free-for-all uh, regime? Iran Lerman, please. I've always worried that Iran, unlike North Korea, would potentially break the, bear, the dam of the NPT. Somehow the, Korean, the North Korean crack did not do it because the countries that would have responded by nuclearizing were already under a Chinese challenge and under the American umbrella. That's South Korea, Taiwan, and of course Japan, which can actually weaponize, I believe, in, in weeks, if not less, Basically, they're sitting on a pile of... of a scrooter in a way, of, as they say. Uh, yes. They sit on a pile of plutonium from the, uh, from the power stations. That's not the issue. The issue was that there was an American system protecting them, and they did not respond to the North Korean breach. In our region, however, Turkey is already 
chafing uh, at, at the five power rule. And, and there was a statement a few couple of years ago from Erdogan, why five? And uh, if Iran goes, it would go, and it would go quickly. Egypt may go. Algeria at one point had an infrastructure. Um, the uh, uh, Saudis, uh, if they are not already in possession of something in the basement, I would say have, uh, to use uh, stock exchange language, they have a put on the Pakistani bond because they've paid for it or they, they help subsidize the, the Pakistani project. So we would be witnessing a cascading collapse of the NPT very quickly if Iran, but that's the big if, if Iran is allowed to actually cross the threshold of weaponization. Let's recall um, the, the entire uh, rationale behind uh, the NPT. Um, it's a double deal. The um, uh, countries which have not gone nuclear yet are being given certain benefits in uh, the so-called Atoms for Peace, the old Eisenhower um, offer of the mid-1950s. And they are given uh, the promise of protection, the umbrella which Iran mentioned, by uh, nuclear powers. That if they are threatened or indeed attacked, the nuclear powers will come uh, to, to their help. And therefore, they do not need nuclear weapons of their own. This is one side of the ledger. The other side is that the nuclear powers, and at that time it was mostly the Soviet Union and the United States, even though China, Great Britain, and France also had and still do have nuclear weapons, that they will neither threaten or go to war using their nuclear weapons against non-nuclear countries, and that down the road, sometime in the future, towards the end of the 21st century or so, they will dismantle their arsenals, which they have not done yet to um, a measurable extent, even though they got rid of obsolete weapons. So where are we headed in this NPT uh, road? Makes us wonder why we're talking about it now. What changed now? When we think about it, there have been nuclear countries that are not signed on the NPT pretty much from the time that the NPT was invented. Um, the India-Pakistan that we always talk about, that's as if within the rules of the NPT, they're the exception to the rules. I want to remind everybody of South Africa as an event that went under the radar and happened there. And then we get to the case of Israel that nobody wants to talk about, certainly not at this table. Um, and according to international media, we are like India or like Pakistan with nuclear capability. And then there is Iran. And what changed now? And Iran is signed on that treaty right. and is not abiding by that treaty, meaning they're breaking the rules that are there. Who's going to make other rules? When you break the rules, Iran breaking rules in the NPT or in anything else is something that we all need to look at. Does that mean we need to throw the entire NPT outside the door? I think that nowadays, the last 20 years even, Amir, have shown us that international agreements are incredibly hard to achieve and that international new agreements that come into being aren't necessarily better 
There are those of us sitting around the table who could have been critical of the agreement with Iran from the beginning about the nuclear issue. So if you say the NPT doesn't exist anymore, I'm not talking about Iran that's already broken it. Does that immediately mean that everybody else is going to break it? And I'm not sure. I think that when you still have something that's semi-functioning, that has had a lot of exceptions throughout the years, I'm not sure that we should immediately say it doesn't exist anymore, it's not relevant anymore, and throw it away. That scares me. Because the alternative is a jungle, chaos. And, and we've seen also that in new agreements, new agreements are not necessarily going to be better And they're very difficult to get to. It sounds very pessimistic in its own way. But the NPT had rules that kind of worked. And Iran has been called out on those rules for many, many years. So it shouldn't be that because of Iran now, they're going to destroy something that has to do with everybody else. Ruben, um, several countries, uh, especially the more technologically developed ones like Germany and Japan, could, of course, um, uh, have developed uh, nuclear weapons. They don't even uh, have to go to the Internet to find uh, popular mechanics. But the uh, conventional wisdom is that if you have only a so-called option or potential, if you are a screw um, drive away, uh, then that's fine because you won't have the political will to go the extra mile or the extra screw. Have things changed regarding that? The whole issue of <laughs> nuclear weapons, I think, is, uh, is, is a mind game more than technology. Because in a way, we could argue that the world will be better off if we all have nuclear weapons. Why? Because then we won't have war. Because we understand how devastating, right? we understand that there's not a winnable war. So if we all have them, we'll have world peace. No, we'll, we'll have conventional wars with nuclear deterrence. <laughs> exactly. And of course, that's yeah, a that's huge... John Mearsheimer's theory, by the way. He's in favor of a 25 to 30 nuclear power. No, better than no, having no. nuclear wars with conventional deterrence. <laughs> and of course, that's a huge mistake because the, one of the problems here is miscalculation, a technical malfunction, some crazy fanatic that presses the button. Even the fact that the United States president has the so-called football and he can press a button, even that in a way is a mistake because we already see who can become president. So this is a, this is a huge, huge challenge. Also, this question of the threshold threshold is very interesting, and it's used in many ways. Uh, Iran has been for many years playing this game, right, with the MPT, right? Uh, are they violating it, uh, the, the wording? Even internally in Iran, the fact that they have a, a, a religious decree, a fatwa, right, by the supreme leader, that a nuclear weapon is against Islam. So in a way, they say, you see, we're proving that we are not aiming to a nuclear weapon. Maybe, maybe a new religious leader will change uh, the fatwa. Right. But also this... It doesn't have to but, change it because it never existed. It's but a also, piece of Iranian fiction. Uh, but even here, if it exists, why is this relevant to what you asked me? Because also here there's a claim, no, no, the fatwa is against using a nuclear weapon, not against possessing it. And we, the Iranians, may need to possess it for our stance. Last thing I'll say at this... But this, if, you, if they are not going to use it, Once they have it, mm -hmm. there will be no deterrence, so they don't have any value in just possessing it. Right. So all this was to answer this question of the, the threshold, the technological threshold, and how close you are to implementation. Danny, you were a member of Israel's um, delegation to the United Nations in addition to your uh, Washington 
embassy service. And it so happens that the uh, five declared nuclear powers are also the permanent members of the Security Council and, and have uh, veto uh, power. Has that been the key fact of international relations uh, for the last uh, several uh, years, dozens of years? And is that going to change if other countries, not only uh, India and Pakistan, um, but also other regional parties, let's say uh, Brazil and Argentina, which up to now uh, have resisted the temptation, but uh, may say, uh, let's leave the Tlatelolco agreement and uh, start a, or restart our nuclear enterprises. Um, how is uh, the global scene going to change from the diplomatic point of view? Well, I can tell you, Amir, I arrived um, in New York for the UN uh, uh, mission in 1993. Already then, the talk was the, um, a real restructuring and uh, reformations and reforms, real deep reforms of the UN. All the, um, the non-aligned countries at the time, you know, the group of 77 that it became later on, were talking about why should uh, the um, Security Council reflect the results of the end of World War II. The world has changed. Japan is a major power. Why isn't Japan in the Security Council? Why two old, I would say, um, almost defunct powers like France and uh, England are still there? That's a very naive question. Why would those powers give up of course, their power? Exactly. And then came countries like Argentina and Brazil, who were vying, you know, that there should be also a representative from the southern countries, you know, the southern continent to be there. Uh, South Africa and Egypt were vying for an African permanent sitting in the Security Council. And we can go on and on and on. But, but in rotation, in not one yes. of them. Actually, what happened was, as, as usual, you know, that the splits, you know, once you cannot have really a uh, coherent and cohesive front, you know, it kind of mixes each other. Pakistan next India. Both of them wanted a permanent seat and all the other countries as well. So it left the five permanent ones basking in the same glory as they have and nothing has changed. But I want to say something in general, you know, in international relations, you know, the order or the architecture of international relations stems out of, I would say, basically two principles. It's either self-serving convenience and interest or deterrence. And in that respect, without the goodwill of participants, and if there is no deterrence on the other, you know, on the other side, then there is no pact or alliance or any kind of regime that can last. NPT is a case in point. If we look really in a sober way, not uh, shying away from staring at reality, the NPT has never worked. It has never worked. Or it's always worked. Or, well, it's always worked in a defunct no. way. Uh, I think 52 years later, after its initiation, we can really look back. Iraq was a member of the NPT. Didn't prevent it from uh, building a nuclear uh, power, and only the Begin Doctrine, 81, or Iraq, Israel took it out. Libya was the same thing. Again, without its voluntarily giving it up, they could have become uh, nuclear, let alone what Iran and Syria and many, many other countries. So as long as you let... A, um, and the NPT was never intrusive enough. They tried later on to add the additional protocol whereby they can really robust, have the more robust uh, um, um, intrusion investigation. That also did not work. The NPT did not work, and part of the reason is 
that today there is no deterrence, there is no world management, let's say. The five powers of the Security Council are also split. You have Russia. So you are very nostalgic. You long uh, for, to the good old days of the Cold War. Listen, the Cold War had some merits. <laughs> Absolutely. But no, I would not go back to the Cold War, but I would hopefully look for some kind of arrangements about the three global powers, Russia, China, and the United States. What about Israel? What about India? India or Pakistan, but I think that we need to have, as long as we will not have rules of the game, the game will be a free-for-all. And uh, you're, you're a veteran. Well, please, please frame your uh, remarks uh, along the lines I'm suggesting. You're a veteran intelligence and national security staff officer um, regarding assessments and especially net assessment. Is the old division between intentions and capabilities germane to the uh, nuclear domain? Well, it's a fascinating question because people tend to forget that expensive as a, a nuclear project may be, once you cross the threshold, it's a relatively cheap way for a country to, def- to, to deter its enemies um, compared to the maintenance of large standing armies. That's a point that drove uh, the Eisenhower perspective and, and, and others have caught on over the years. The new look of so, the 1950s. So the, the, the uh, correlation of means and intentions here is, I think, very tempting. So the fascinating thing about the NPT is that it not only happened at all, that it turned around Um, and I think specifically against the background of the Cuban Missile Crisis and its lessons, turned around a whole series of countries which were on the verge of going nuclear. Um, I think the first was, interestingly enough, Sweden. I wonder if they are left in the lurch by Turkish veto, would they rethink their decision in the late 50s? Um, it, uh, Brazil and Argentina were already digging silos for their missiles back then. Uh, Taiwan was on its way. Um, South, South Korea, Korea was on its way. Uh, countries do, did this turnaround when they were reassured by the power structures. Above all, uh, the NPT is the product of American will and something that the Soviet Union went along with because they had the interest of their own of keeping making the club uh, small and intimate. If we are seeing the uh, frame of the NPT today, it is a function, I think I would go along with, with Dennis' uh, assessment here, uh, the frame of the uh, structure of authority in yeah. world affairs. But really, the word deterrence, which we all bandy about, uh, only has to do with weapons of mass destruction, existential threats, Take the case of Israel. Everyone understands that Israel will not stand for any threat to its existence, not after the Holocaust or ever. But this does not help Israel block conventional or subconventional terrorist attacks or other sorts of threats. So it's a very limited deterrent, even if you are perceived to have nuclear weapons. 
I'm always worried when we take nuclear weapons and act as if they're like everything else. They are not like everything else. It's not just about the destruction capability. And I think that we need to remind ourselves that weapons of mass destruction, within them nuclear weapons, are something else. We have this lovely thing of the planet behind us in that sense. It can blow up the planet. This isn't about individuals. It isn't about a thousand people. It isn't about a hundred thousand people. Do we need to remember the numbers of the two nuclear explosions in World War II? And that was teeny weeny compared to what nuclear weapons are today. So first of all, let's keep nuclear weapons in their own category. Having said that, there are way more people in the world today and the power structure has changed. If you say the NPT does not work, that it never worked in that sense, I look around and I say, I think it, I, I don't always see agreements as being the way they are in the way that they were signed. I always like the fact that agreements have a life of their own, which is beyond what's written in it. The aspect of what we call non-papers or the things that are actually happening, even though they're not written into it. The NPT worked pretty okay, way better than anything else with its limitations. The world did not go on a nuclear splurge. We don't have all sorts of maverick countries. Maverick is too cute. So, Mary, Crazy countries. So you say better keep everything under the, the table so we don't see but it. But it isn't we just... we don't see it, it works. But it's not like that, Danny, because under that facade, they did manage to stop Libya by buying it off. And South Africa decided to choose to go a different way. And Sweden chose to go a different way. Those things all happened. I think that what was incorporated into it was the India-Pakistan. And that was a major change that happened and was incorporated into the NPT. The actual thing, which is not within the NPT that none of us want to talk about, and I don't want to either in that sense, was if, according to international um, media, Israel has nuclear capability, we're actually the only exception within all of those rules of somebody who, as if, according to that, went nuclear and isn't playing within the rules. But Israel is not a member of the NPT. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. We never broke any commitments. We never broke a commitment. And so in its own way, we worked within the rules as they were defined at the time because we chose not to participate in it. And I'm very wary nowadays of taking something and I think it actually, with all of its problems, does work. And I'm totally aware of all of the problems. And I think that when we say it's not going to work and we do like we did, not us, but the Iran nuclear agreement, we up and leave because we say that's bad. We're leaving it. And I do not think that we're in, better, in a better position when you don't have an agreement, which is bad, than when you do have an agreement that also impacts a lot of other players. Woven, you have been, and uh, in a sense uh, still are, a member of the vaunted Israeli Air Force, which is obviously the leading technological arm of the uh, IDF, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, and of course, with, in conjunction with intelligence, um, is the uh, leading edge force that Israel uh, can, can bring to bear. So um, knowing what you know about military technology, aren't we uh, putting uh, nuclear weapons on too high a pedestal with what has happened uh, in recent years regarding cyber, regarding precision weaponry, 
where you can use sub-nuclear weapons uh, to such a devastating effect that the nuclear taboo is not what it used to be? Complicated question. Basically, I think no. I think that nuclear weapons still are the deterrent that they used to be. The proof is Russia. Rus Russia now are emboldened in what they're doing in Ukraine, and they're doing it without the backlash of the world because of their nuclear weapons. This is what I believe. So it still has that stance. And it's not that I'm arguing now for Israel having nuclear weapons. Remember that I have no personal knowledge, but since I know that every technological field, Israel makes a point of being at the front edge of technology, right? So if you ask, do, does Israel have intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? Big secret. We build satellites, we launch them into space. Well, you know what kind of kinds of technology we can build, right? So we're leading in cyber, leading in drones. My guess is we're leading in every, in every technological aspect, and rightfully so. Uh, but but uh, as far as the other fronts, we are making a point of being in all other fronts. In cyber capabilities today, and I don't like it when Israelis saying we're the best at cyber capabilities today, we're probably one of the world leaders. And remember that not yet maybe perceived by us as devastating as nuclear weapons are, but still a day may come where you press a button and millions of people don't have food and water. That's, Miri, I, I see how concerned you are, for, we all are, from nuclear weapons. Cyber capabilities, when you shut down a country, when you deprive them of electricity, take away their food and their, and their energy resources. Better, better drink while we still can. So this means that we are <laughs> having other capabilities coming online. But still, nuclear capabilities, as Miri said, if you have each and every warheads 500 times Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that's something. Just one more point I wanted to make, because around the table where we're we're divided as far as the success of the NPT. I, I think that the fact that today we have so much less than we thought we may have, this is a sign of measure of success. The fact that Russia and the United States had 30,000 warheads each and now have, how many do that? 5,000 each. But those are the numbers, okay? So we are, in a way, understanding the constraints this puts on us. But right now we're in a bad trend because of Russia and because of and supersonics. What about, Danny, what yeah. about international organizations such as the IAEA, which is, of course, um, a byproduct of the entire uh, global order, the United Nations and other organizations? Are they losing uh, whatever perceived power they had? Well, the question is, have, have they ever had any power? And you're talking about international uh, organizations, it's not just the IAA. You look at UNESCO, you look at the Human Rights uh, Council, you look at the, uh, at the, uh, the ICC, WF, the ICC even, even, you know, the food programs, uh, you know, fighting poverty and all that. Has any of the world plights been even, even you know, slightly mitigated by the UN? Not at all. And just as the UNESCO is dysfunctional, just as every other organ in the United Nations is dysfunctional, IAEA, I mean, they can call on Iran. They can even recommend sanctions on Iran, but they don't have the power to do it. The power to do it is by the Security Council. And again, we go back to the management issue. If the Security Council is split in such a way where there are bitter uh, rivals there, not to say uh, enemies, Nothing works. Now, I'm afraid that uh, in the case of the, the nuclear um, uh, capability technology, the genie is out of the bottle. You cannot put it back in. And I, That's I, not new. I totally agree. But, uh, you know, with Reuven, you know, 
we should have maybe an NPT for cyber. We should have NPT for, uh, you know, for uh, uh, hypersonic and, and many, many other, you know, space. Uh, uh, why, why would any country give up its uh, sovereignty over this particular domain in exchange for what? Exactly. So it was, that's why I think it was a facade. In the, in the 70s, in the 80s, when you really had a world order, maybe it wasn't the best world order, but countries knew that there could be some uh, uh, repercussion if they do not abide by it because either sanctions or maybe even, uh, you know, threat of nuclear invasion, uh, um, sorry, military uh, invasion by either the Soviet Union or the United States, um, and they have been working and, and, and doing this, uh, these things. This may have had some kind of deterrence, and also there was no need. But once you break, you know, once you just put a hole in the dam, you know, it's becoming an avalanche, and more and more countries would like to have it. But, but Iran... I want to... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Not, go ahead. Go back to the question of nuclear deterrence. Is it, is it uh, uh, irrelevant? First of all, uh, for 40 years, the Soviet Union had 200 divisions. Okay, let's say that uh, of these, 80 were battle-worthy. But they could... They, they, uh, I've heard this from, from, from division commanders that they had in their safe these red these envelopes to be opened on uh, on order and they were they were going to be in 3 weeks in biarritz and the reason they well, never what ma- what uh, were they looking to do there well, it's a nice it's a nice speech um, and the reason they never managed to get to the pyrenees is that the us promised to incinerate no because moscow was afraid was afraid that they will defect yeah, once they could, once they get to the once they come back from biarritz but Yeah, it is because the U.S. was committed to incinerating tens of millions of Russians in the first hours of conflict. In other words, uh, Europeans who are, you know, unpleasant about the concept of deterrence forget that they owe their liberty and prosperity to it. In the case of Israel, uh, leaving aside the question of what we have or do not have, the fact that in the minds of Arab decision-makers, there is an Israeli capability. Must have something to do with the fact that the last Arab army that met, that that launched a war against it did so 49 years ago, and did so on very limited premises and for very limited purposes, knowing full well that they will they cannot go beyond it. So um, it's not irrelevant, and the understanding why Israel of all nations uh, is in that position is apparently um, widespread because in the IAEA votes, that's the one international institution where Israel won again and again by growing margins, votes against our Egyptian neighbors who wanted us to be defanged in their mind. But they lost the- these votes. Why? Because there's a broad understanding in Europe, in some of our friends in Asia and beyond, why is it that Israel requires this unique position? Which, which is uh, one reason the Americans have been so generous in supplying Israel with conventional weapons so that it does not feel that uh, it has its uh, back to the wall. And you mentioned the word prosperity regarding Europe or perhaps Japan. This is because the Americans have invested in their nuclear arsenals and they freed the uh, uh, Victi- not the victims, uh, the vanquished of uh, World War II to recover their economies 
uh, free of charge. Miri. I'm worried that between what I'm hearing here is that yay for the old order, <clears throat> sorry, of nuclear deterrence of, we're not in, we're, we're, I want to say otherwise, we're in 2022. This isn't the Soviet Union against the United States. The United States has taken a step back. The United States is inside a very challenging place right now, which directly impacts not just its own nuclear weapons, but the way that all of the countries that felt that they were under that nuclear umbrella feel right now. Add into it that Russia has suddenly chosen to rattle the sabers of nuclear capabilities, meaning it's absolutely relevant. And what I'm hearing at least this is what I'm hearing, is that and now is the time to stop the NPT because it never worked. And I'm going, now at the time that Russia is, is rattling its sabers, at a time that the United States is stepping back, maybe what did work, perhaps it's better to keep on letting it work than in this world try to invent something new. We're not going to be able to invent anything new. Russia's going to block anything new. So I'm just worried in that sense that as we look around at it, where we need to go. I'm not. A, I'm, I'm all in favor of keeping the NPT alive. I, I see this cascading uh, potential as catastrophic. The one way to do it is to stop Iran in its tracks by any means necessary. Does this mean we have to decide today if we're continuing the NPT? Well, <laughs> be, between between the time we record this and the time it is going to be broadcast, uh, decisions uh, will have to be made. Now, uh, we all talk about the old world order where nations, nation states were the actors. But there is this fear that uh, individuals such as the Pakistani A.Q. Khan will do what they want for their own mercenary uh, whims, and that groups, subnational units, Hezbollah, Daesh, Al-Qaeda, who knows uh, who, uh, will get their hands on nuclear weapons. There will be no intricate command and control system, and they may not wait uh, until they have six warheads before they start something or a second strike capability, mm -hmm. they could indeed blow at least an entire region apart. Miri and I are both associates at ICT. We've been here. Which is the International Institution for Counterterrorism. Thank you. It's about time that I learned. <laughs> We've been talking about this for 20 years, right? All this what if uh, scenario planning, been talking for years about a dirty bomb coming into Haifa port on a ship. Right? So these, these, this is a, a threat. And of course, it's one of the main reasons that we've been dealing with counterproliferation. Uh, in a way, we always say that the, the big powers, right, China, what does China want? Maybe global dominance, but also stability because they want to make, they want to have business. They don't want to ruin the world, right? But all these other actors you're talking about, they may have calculations that are crazy, right? They may want to disrupt something and do something that it, no one can imagine the consequences. So absolutely. So the only thing I can say about this is that I know that the intelligence organizations are working very hard on that, and at least we are keeping a very close eye to even understand components and organizations and money to make sure that if something like that ever comes close to fruition, we'll be, we'll be able to thwart it on time. The Obama administration, by the way, initiated a series of global summits on the question of nuclear security. 
which right. is central to the prevention of such. Scenarios. That is the, not only the proliferation of weapons, but also what happens uh, to uh, power stations uh, and the such. But you mentioned um, Barack Obama, which leads to, to another uh, question. It was only a dozen years ago or so that President Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize for a very naive platform pledging um, zero nuclear weapons down the, the road. And obviously the trend has not been kept. Well, I, I would challenge the word naive. I'll tell you why. Because he was echoing an essay written by four people, one of whom definitely is not on my radar as naive. Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger and per Kissinger, Perrin, it's, I think it was, and Sam Nunn. And Sam Nunn who wrote an essay just before Obama came in, arguing for zero. Now, the point at the time for Americans to argue for zero was we have the largest and most effective conventional capability worldwide. We are in the lead on cyber and other capabilities as well, and so are our friends and allies, Israel among them. And therefore, we can look forward to a future where at zero, we can keep the world order without nuclear deterrence. This is probably precisely the reasons why the Russians did not go along. The fourth one was Scowcroft, uh, I, I, I believe. Check, but, but, I, but in any event, uh, what we see now is that the United States and Great Britain have joined with Australia to nuclearize their um, region, the, the uh, Indo-Pacific uh, or Oceania. So uh, this runs against uh, the grain of what Obama preached. Well, we're, we're talking propulsion here. Not, Starts not with the, propulsion, not, then it goes to but, warheads. But the Australians are now hedging their bets. If they feel that the NPT is coming down, they will be very uh, prominent in the list of countries. that will Because they changed their government? Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the new the new government will be less eager. I think, but but in any case, uh, if their region begins to go that way, um, they may make that choice. When we look at powers in play, we have a tendency to go to the United States, to Russia. You just went out towards, in that sense, Australia. And going, let's talk about the two additional ones that need to be part of this discussion: China and India, both nuclear. One a Security Council member, one not. The two countries together add up to what? A third of the population of the world? Okay, too much. Did I say that there? And I say that because in today's new world and that changes that we're looking at, when we're looking at the NPT, let's bring India into the world. Let's hear what they have to say. I do not accept that India-Pakistan sort of aspect because India has immense things that Pakistan doesn't have. It's as if we put them on the same platform and they're not the same. Um, India has a border with China. I mean, it's like that whole different arena of, of looking at the world through the eyes of the Pacific, from the Australia, India, um, Asian perspective. Maybe we're not going to be looking at it anymore from that U.S.-Russia perspective. We're not. Those aren't the only two who have large nuclear arsenals who can enlarge no, them. Mary, if you we go to, to Australia, you see the globe upside down. You know, there or down under. Top, they're they're standing with their heads upside exactly. down, right? But what, but Miru, um, what does the uh, poor Indian farmer get from the fact 
and the national pride. Ask the of same it. question of Russia. Ask the same question of most countries. Never underestimate pride in that sense. And I think that in its own way, India has the nuclear weapons. It isn't a question. It isn't that they're on the quest. They already have them. And India is looking for a place at that world table. And China's on that table. And I just say, let's look at it. And maybe we can look at a new, different kind of added-in option. But this is uh, the uh, very same cascade which Iran talked about. The United States was the first one. Then the Soviet Union got it. So China got it. The Britain got it in collaboration with the United States. And France wanted to have its own independent deterrent. Force de frappe. And when... China had it, India must have had it, and so Pakistan had it, and here we are, which is, of course, the reason... But that's from the 70s. Again, it's like we're going back. That's 50 years ago. Final words, Daniel Yalon. Well, I would say I would, in a way, a little bit contradict myself and say that if we want the NPT to continue work as it did, you know, with all its, uh, its um, obstacles, we should stop Iran, because a nuclear Iran will be a new world order to the detriment of everybody, including European and uh, the United States. No one uh, is disputing that, but how? That's the question. An agreement or something else? Well, agreement if we can, military if we must. Two words. The next uh, conference that's coming up in August, postponing, postponing, they should deal with uh, signatories like Iran and not non-signatories like Israel. Keep what works and know how to live with what doesn't. Iran. Bear in mind the lesson of Ukraine having given up its option and what happens to it now. The outcome of the war may determine whether other countries would feel the same. Iran Lerman, Miri Eisen, Ruven Ben Shalom, Daniel Elon, thank you. And we will be back with another edition of Powers in Play. Shalom from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.